Imagine it's the day after Christmas. Not today. The day after the first Christmas. So that means it's probably not actually December. That observed date came a little bit later. And it also means we're not having a white Christmas, either in terms of weather or in our nativity figures. Christmas Day was magical. It was miraculous. Angels showed up. The Messiah was born. It's a pretty awesome day. And then the day after Christmas? Nothing. And, and I don't just mean nothing new. I mean nothing is happening. Jesus isn't doing anything except taking naps, crying for Mary to feed him, and pooping his swaddling clothes. The people remain in captivity. The poor remain oppressed. Nothing is happening. What was all that angelic commotion about? And it's not just that nothing happens the day after Christmas. Things don't get better the day after that, or the week after that, or the month after that, or the year after that, or the decade after that, or the next decade, or the next decade. That means that by the time Jesus starts actually doing Messiah stuff, you know, teaching, miracles, gaining followers, everyone else in our cute nativity set is pretty much dead, except for maybe Mary. We know Mary's around, but probably the rest of them never heard anything else about this baby Messiah. And the days when nothing happened were actually the good days. We get one of those other days in Matthew. See, we basically have three stories between Christmas and when Jesus starts doing Messiah stuff three decades later. Two of them involve Jesus at the temple. One of them just eight days after his birth, and the other when he's 12. Now let's put these passages and these trips into perspective. If we make Jefferson City Jerusalem, then that means we're just a block or so away from King Herod's mansion. And then for the little town of Bethlehem, let's say Westphalia. Really insignificant, wide spot on the road, no one of importance there. Apologies to anyone from Westphalia. But that first trip then to the temple for Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus was pretty easy. They were close. They came in through the door right back there. Uh, Simeon and Anna greeted them. There was some prophecy that happened. It was another little hint that maybe something good, something special was just around the corner. Now, by the time they make the other trip that's recorded in our New Testament scriptures to the temple, the families moved up north to Macon. Can anything good come from Macon? Again, apologies for anyone from Macon, but it's in the text. In between, however, we get the dark story. The story that we usually leave out of our nativity sets and our cute children's plays at church. Remember, Christmas had been a pretty special day in Westphalia. Joseph and Mary ended up there because of the census, but this government mandate left them without a place to stay because the bed and breakfast was all booked up. So they ended up in the pool house out back. Mary gave birth on a reclining chair, and Joseph nearly passed out. 
But he followed the steps on a how-to YouTube video, so they got through it. And then they wrapped the child up in a guest towel and put him in a toy box after Joseph threw all the basketballs out. Now, nearby in that same area, there were some Hispanic immigrants just outside, outside of town working late in the animal-to-food business. They were taking care of the chickens, if you will, which is basically what shepherds do. They just fatten them up so they can be nice and ready for Passover. Anyways, these Hispanic immigrants, some less documented than others, were there with the chickens. And then an angel shows up. And I don't mean the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, cute singer with a white flowing choir robe on. You see, when the Bible describes angels, they're scary. Ezekiel describes, describes one as having four faces, a lion, an ox, and an eagle, and a human, oh my, with legs, wings, and bull hooves. Daniel describes one as green, kind of like a pale, skinny version of the Hulk, but with flaming torch eyes. Think less children's pageant and more alien movie. And so there's a reason that when the angels show up, that pretty much the first thing they always say is, fear not. Because these are exactly the type of creatures that you have nightmares about for years. So anyways, the angel tells the chicken guys the good news that the baby born in Westphalia and wrapped in a, towel, a guest towel in a toy box. So they ditch their job, they pile into a pickup truck and head into town to praise the newborn ruler. One who would provide them justice, who would bring an end to poverty, an end to economic exploitation, an end to racial discrimination. For these men shepherding chickens into the next life, this is big news. And then nothing happens. Their lives don't get better. People still look down on them, take advantage of them. Nothing happens the next day, or the day after that, or the week after that, or the month after that, or the year after that, or the decade after that, or the next decade, or even the next decade. And perhaps they start to wonder if it was all just a dream. Then back up here in Jefferson City, some astrologers arrive from out east. Some godless place, let's say Massachusetts. Apologies to anyone from the Bay State. Anyways, these astrologers show up in Herod's mansion asking about the newborn ruler. And Herod is upset at the news because he likes ruling. And also he wants his dynasty to continue to rule. And so this usurper to the throne could threaten his legacy, if not his own direct power. Anyways, the astrologers explained that their tarot cards had led them to this region. So Herod calls in his evangelical advisors to ask for some advice here. The preacher said that it had been written that you, Westphalia, in the land of Missouri, are by no means least in the land. And so the new ruler would come from there. So the astrologers from Massachusetts traverse in their land rover down Highway 63 to find the newborn ruler. Now, having been warned in their morning horoscope not to return to Governor Herod and tell him what they found, they went home by another way. We'll say maybe through Kentucky or something. Unfortunately, Governor Herod eventually realizes that he's been ghosted. And so he activates a unit of the National Guard, and they go down and slaughter about 20 baby boys in Westphalia. Now, Jesus is safe. Joseph had taken the family south across the border into Mexico. But we shouldn't let our story in there. 20 families are heard 
weeping and in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. And the families don't even know why. They have no clue why Herod sent the National Guard, knocked down their front door, plucked up their baby boy from his high chair or his crib or right off his mother's breast and shot him. And then the guardsmen just walked out without a word. A moment later, just as the shock is starting to wear off and the deep wails of anguish are starting to come up, the family hears the crash next door and then the door past that and then another shot and on it goes down the street and soon everyone in town has heard the crashing, the shooting, and the wailing. And those of us in Jefferson City, we hear about it too in hushed whispers because we dare not speak about it too loudly. Many here are still loyal to Herod, or at least pretend to be. None of us wants to end up like those families in Westphalia, and so we do little more than shake our heads and move on. It's not like it's the first tragedy. It might dominate the news for a day or two, but we'll move on as a society. I mean, about that same number, 20 kids were gunned down in Sandy Hook Elementary, and we did nothing as a country other than follow it in the news for a few days. Same with the Orlando nightclub, the Las Vegas concert, the church in Texas, the Walmart in El Paso, the school in Florida, more recently the school in Michigan, and on and on and on. We act shocked, sad, shrug, and move on. But for those families in Westphalia, they never move on, not completely. They wonder, they shout, they wail, why, God, why? And maybe some of them eventually just say why. Because they no longer see a point in asking a God they no longer believe in. And regardless, they never find out why. Joseph and Mary and Jesus are gone. The families in Westphalia never know what we know in the text, that Herod was trying to kill the Messiah. And even if they did know, would that bring them comfort? Would that mean much? Their babies are, babies are brutally slaughtered, and then nothing happens. And nothing happens the day after that, or the week after that, or the month after that, or the year after that, or the decade after that, or the next decade, or the next decade. Even if they did know why Herod had killed their babies, I suspect most would start to wonder if it had all been in vain. No good came from it. The Messiah escaped Herod, but then doesn't seem to show back up. And as the days turn into weeks, turn into months, turn into years, turn into decades, others also feel their faith fading. You see, one of those chicken guys had stepped into a gas station to grab a Coke after filling up, and he hears the whispers about the slaughter, and he, he feels the air sucked out of his body, and he has to lean up against the candy shelf just to keep from falling over as the room spins, and he wonders, did they get him? He whispers with the other guys at the next shift, and most of them say, surely that that creature that had been flying above the chicken guts would have saved the baby, but as the years pass, they start to wonder and doubt. And maybe eventually they push it all aside as just a hallucination. And in Massachusetts, those astrologers keep turning on CNN and checking their tarot cards for any sign of the new ruler. But he doesn't show up. 
And he doesn't show up the next day or the next week or the next month or the next year or the next decade or the decade after that or the decade after that. And perhaps those guys start to lose faith and think they got it all wrong. And maybe that's where you are today. Perhaps as we wind up a second year of living in a pandemic, you've mostly been going through the motions, pretending to see the magic, the miracles of Christmas. But deep down, you know you're struggling to believe. Because it seems like we're living in those days after that first Christmas where hope has been announced in dramatic fashion with angelic flair. But nothing seems to be getting better. Perhaps it feels like we live in a, like a time in Narnia under the reign of the White Witch where it's always winter but never Christmas. You see, a year ago we wrapped up Christmas in a pandemic year and hope seemed on the horizon. Vaccines were about to roll out, but it turns out you can't save someone who refuses help. And our individual actions continue to impact our communities. So here we are nearing the end of a second pandemic year with a surge growing to start the third. And more people died in 2021 from COVID than in 2020. 5.4 million people total around the globe in two years. 5.4 million. It's a number that's so large, it's hard to even fathom. It's close to taking the entire metro area of Atlanta and just wiping out the population. Imagine an apocalyptic fashion if that sprawling metro suddenly sat quiet and abandoned. Still, we see the lie. Or consider another way of thinking about 5.4 million people. If we paused just one second, just one second of silent remembrance for each victim of COVID, we would be here in this sanctuary together sitting in silence for 63 days. One second per person. 63 days, that's until about February 27th. Just one second for each person made in the image of God. And of course, by then we'd have to add a few more days because of all the people that would die between now and then. Because if the rate is going at the current pace, that means globally about 270 people will die during the hour that we are gathered here today for worship, just from COVID. Rachel weeps for her children and refuses to be comforted. But I fear we become so numb to COVID deaths that we don't even weep. And it's not that because unlike the biblical archetype, Rachel, we have been comforted. It's rather because we refuse to be discomforted. Some even deny there's a pandemic as if 5.4 million people can just disappear without meaning. Why, God, why, perhaps we want to wail. Where are you, God? You see, it's a day after Christmas. Hope has been announced, but nothing seems to happen. Nothing seems to have changed. People are still dying. Herod still rule. The rich still exploit the poor. And our society still discriminates against people like those Hispanic immigrants taking care of our chickens, the unwed pregnant woman and her partner, and those godless astrologers. What if Christmas came and nothing changed? What if after the angels go away, the darkness settles back on the land? What if the days and years to follow just seem like those before the first Noel? 
In a moment like this, the Christmas song that I feel is Shepherd's Lament, written a couple of years ago by Kirby Brown. He, he imagines a shepherd back in Bethlehem who heard the angels had proclaimed good news, but he struggles to find the faith to actually believe that salvation has come. After all, if the king has come, where is he? Why is he not ruling? Here's part of what he sings. I walk down through the village, out past the city lights, up here on this hilltop out of sight. And I can hear everybody singing, but I just can't find the tune. If grace is coming, I hope it's coming soon. What Brown does is, while in the song, he meshes together the old story with the new and the contemporary, a little bit like what we've been doing today. The cover art for the track shows the Magi at a a fork in a dotted paved road, and off to the left is the traditional nativity scene, and off to the right is a gas station. And, and Brown rests the song in that undefined time of back then and now, after the announcement, but before God's justice has actually come to reign. Here's a bit more of what he sings. The wise men must have missed their turn somewhere on Highway 10, the walls of that old manger caving in and heavens in a holding pattern over Bethlehem. I keep on hoping, but don't know what I'm hoping for. Christmas fills just like the day before. And so like after that first Christmas, today we wait. We wait for a time without masks. We wait for a time without a pandemic. We wait for a time with no more tears and no more dying. We wait, and we wait. And somehow, in that waiting, we also hope. Because that's why we even showed up today. It's because deep down, even in all of the despair and the waiting, we still have that sliver of memory of that magical day. We still have that hope, even when nothing changes. We have that hope even when nothing changes today or the next day or the next week or the next month or the next year or the next decade.